to the Hey Legends, I'm just about to jump into an interview with Dr. Haley Worth. Um, Haley is an ED doctor and also a palliative care doctor. Um, and she's also done GP. Um, Haley is amazing. I've had the privilege of working with her. Um, and this episode, I'm going to call it um, the 10 lessons from Dr. Haley Worth. Um, it's really interesting. Haley gives us some really important take home messages from when we see our patients, um, also in relation to family members. And also as a clinician, um, some real awesome take-home points. So if you're a, you know, an ED doctor, if you're a nurse, um, a paramedic, or even a student, there's some really good take-home tips that Haley gives us. Um, and I've seen Haley operate as a clinician. She's so kind. And the best thing I've noticed about her is that she just takes that extra bit of time to explain things to people. And we always know when communication breaks down, generally our patient has a worse experience. Um, so let's listen to this. Um, I think you're really gonna love it. I really enjoyed hanging out with Haley. Um, so we're gonna crack into the episode. Awesome, awesome <laughs> podcast and the ED Jam. Today I am chatting with Dr. Haley Worth. Welcome, Haley. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here tonight. Awesome. I know it's tonight we um, have kids, so we can't always do things at the right time. <laughs> um, well, the kids are in bed. <laughs> Baby wanted to worry, you know, don't need that anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, I've got Haley here on the podcast and I'm really excited. Um, I've, I get to work with Haley, which is even more awesome. Um, Haley, what do you do? And welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Firstly, I just want to say I am so, so grateful to work with you, Ben, and I'm so grateful to work with the most amazing nurses. I think I'm really, really privileged to work with you guys. So thank you so much. Um, what I do is a little bit what I've <laughs> what I've chosen as my um, I guess my area of um interest um within medicine is a little bit unusual um i started off um when i was a junior doctor thinking that i wanted to go into general practice because i thought oh i want to get out of the um you know the hospital system all of the um you know i guess the the nonsense that you deal with in the hospital system so i went into general practice and then i realized that i actually missed the hospital system which is hilarious <laughs> i think it's because i missed like the teamwork and i missed kind of um you know working with like closely with other people and i also missed the acuity as well um so um what i did was um i was really really fortunate enough when i was on mat leave um with my little baby girl hazel um to get this job in ed um and then after that about six months after that i started working i applied for and got in as a um, palliative care advanced trainee uh, one and a half years through my, or sorry, about halfway through my palliative care advanced training. And they're both, so both ED and palliative care, they're both such awesome, awesome specialties, like for kind of for different reasons. And I just feel incredibly um, privileged and lucky to be able to um, do both. And each time that I kind of go from one to the other, like half of my week is spent doing one, the other half of the week is spent doing the other. I'm always like, oh, this is so awesome. I love that I'm back in here. Then I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'm, I love that I'm back in palliative care. So it's just such a great combination for me, palliative care as well. 100%. Yeah, so why do you like palliative oh, thank care? thank you. Yeah. So I love palliative care. I think it is probably one of the very, very few specialties where mm. you actually take the time with the patient 
and with their family to really get to know them and to really try to help them as a whole person. Like we will spend, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of ED physicians would hate this. <laughs> we, would, we would spend like an hour or an hour and a half or maybe even two hours with a patient and their family, like really getting to know them. And like by the end of, you know, your consultation, like you almost feel like you're an extended family member and, and you know, obviously as long as the consultation's gone well, um, you, you will find that, you know, you just feel this real kind of kinship with them and they feel that with you as well. And they feel really listened to and really valued. Um, you can also make a huge difference um, in, in someone's symptoms. So as everyone knows, palliative care is not just, um, you know, um, it's not just helping someone towards the end of life. It's helping anyone who has any sort of life-limiting illness, so whether that's a malignancy or non-malignancy. So my special interest within um, palliative care is actually renal supportive care, which is patients who choose to um, who have end-stage kidney disease who choose the non-dialysis pathway. So that's my special interest where I'm hoping to kind of end up working. So, you know, those patients, they might be on that pathway for months or even years. So it's, you know, you're really building this beautiful long-term relationship with people and their families where they trust you, you know them, and you can really make such a difference to their quality of life. It's a beautiful specialty. Highly recommend it to anyone who's thinking about it. <laughs> I guess, did anything draw you, like, did anything happen to you, Hayley, personally, that made you be drawn to palliative care? Like, did you have a loss of a family member or someone that made you drawn to that specialty or was it something um, you just looked at and thought that's oh, really... really interesting that you asked that actually I did um you know when I was when I was much younger my grandfather did um did um die of a particularly nasty type of um sarcoma and um he was in um, palliative this is in the states he was in palliative care mm. um before he died and my my grandmother who I'm very um close with um she um always just spoke so highly of the care that he received and I just I you know I didn't really know what it meant at the time but I just thought that was really beautiful and then when I was a resident I was really lucky enough to have a rotation at um Calvary and to be um under um fabulous specialists so I was so fortunate to, I was really inspired and there was a particular family there who I became um really close with so it was a the patient was a man who, who was around about he was in his late 40s and unfortunately he was dying of GPM and he had a wife and two daughters who were in their uh, late teens. I think one was in the last year of high school and one was like 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually ended up becoming friends with them um, wow. throughout the course of his admission. Yeah, and we still keep in touch um, oh. today. <laughs> we're still in touch. And just that the beautiful, I guess, um, I guess, um, nature of that relationship and and I guess you know really feeling like you've tried to make a difference in 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 that whole family it's not just the patient it's like in the whole family's lives it just I thought gee this is so different to other areas of medicine where it's like rush in rush out you know you spend five minutes with the patient you don't really stop and and say what is going on what can I help you with which is I guess the essence of palliative care you're really getting to the bottom of what you can help the patient with mm. it's interesting too because both specialties ED and GP you are on yeah. a time restriction you That's know right. you, you yeah. are on the sense that like I really want to spend yeah. time with you 
and I hope you're okay. I've got to run across this beeping alarm. I've got to go and sort this leg out. I've got to that do this. So true. That's so true. Like in GP, you're on ten to fifteen minute appointments, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, people are backing up in the waiting room. This is so stressful." And then in ED, you're like, you're watching the two to scene that's just like explode before your very eyes, and you're like, "Oh my gosh." <laughs> it's so, so true. true. It's um, <laughs> it's interesting that you raise that because I think so often we can um present physicians as these people that you know can't have the conversations with family and can't sort of engage on that really emotional level and yeah. I really feel palliative care does that and I think it's such a beautiful specialty yeah. I've had the privilege of working in some palliative care ships and it was amazing um, oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, even having my grandfather die um with oh, palliative care yeah. stuff that stuff was so amazing just how um personable they were and you know they come and talk to you and yeah. remember your name those things matter yeah that's that's exactly right yes yeah. yes just those little things that's exactly right yeah so you've done you're doing palliative care and why ed mm. like what why the you know why on the side to dabble in you know the the exciting or almost the you know the fast paced environment you couldn't have picked the chalk and cheese really you know no that's right i know i think it just keeps my adrenaline going i love it it's so exciting you never know what you're going to get you know you've always got to kind of um think fast act quickly um it's um it's you you can you, again you can make a big difference in people's lives because it might be you know a really really stressful day for them perhaps their child is injured or they're very unwell yeah. and you can really make a big difference in that in that day of their life which has started off as a really really crappy day yeah. um and also the other thing about ed and in particular peds ed is that it's actually got um at least one similarity with palliative care and that really um in order to be a good palliative care physician and in order to be a good emergency doctor especially for peds you really have to be a good communicator mm. because you need to be able to communicate um to other teams you know if the child needs admission you oh sorry you know, if the child needs admission or needs you know further investigations or management or so forth you need to be able to communicate to them but more importantly you need to be able to communicate with the child and with their parents um what you feel is going on with them and then you need to be able to reassure them in ways that they understand and you need to be able to provide them appropriate advice going forward of what they should be looking out for in terms of deterioration mm, i love how you say that because when you work, and I've seen this, uh, you communicate with everybody, which I love. Uh, the nurses you work with, the consultant who's on for the day, the clerical person who's there, the, the child, even the, and the child, we forget the yeah. child sometimes because they're younger, but you'll explain it, and the parents. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and you know, when you look at the roster and your name's there, it's a, oh, sweet, you know, because they know oh. that, that there's not that breakdown in communication, which... Our patients yeah. can get upset about when there's a breakdown in communication. That's right. And it's very easy to break down in communication. It's very easy. You you know, you're kind of just going along your own path with your blinkers on <laughs> and then you forget that you didn't, you know, necessarily feel the, the patient and on what was happening or feel the parents and on what's happening. And perhaps they've been sitting there waiting for four hours having yes. no idea what's going on and they're thinking that they've been forgotten about or that their child's been forgotten about. Um, which is an awful feeling. I can't imagine, you know, if I were in that position, I'd be very stressed. So I always just think it might take a little bit of, might take a few extra seconds, but it really doesn't actually take that much extra time. And we're going to get onto your 10 points in a second. One thing I wanted to raise, <laughs> people can dabble in two different, you know, genres or dabble in two different fields of yeah, medicine. that's right. Yeah. Why is that good for you? Why, like doing two different things, it creates a bit of, I guess, you never get bored. Yeah, 
I definitely never get bored. Um, I think also it gives me balance and perspective in my life. So um, they both balance each other out. So when I'm in ED and I'm, um, you know, kind of go, 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 and I'm just focusing on, you know, um, fixing people up perhaps and getting them out the door, then um, palliative care gives me that perspective of, oh, you know what, these people mm. perhaps, you know, I have a lot of young patients who are um, who, who have life-limiting illnesses, you know, they are they are looking down the pointy end of their lives. You know, we need to slow down. You know, I just think, you know, as in we we as doctors, we as nurses, we as people just in general in society, we need to slow down and appreciate life because none of us know, you know, what's in front of us. Mm. Um, so that gives me that gives me that balance. And then um, when I'm in sorry, when I'm in palliative care, sometimes things can get very heavy emotionally, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, so then going into ED gives me that kind of balance from that because it's like, okay, all right, not everything is really horrible and mm. sad. You know, here's a beautiful, happy, you know, well child who just needed a simple thing. The beautiful thing about pains is that most children aren't actually that unwell. Most children you really can do a lot to make them feel better and then they'll bounce back to being their happy, healthy selves again. Yeah. And the, um, how do you cope with the, if you don't mind me asking, the pal care stuff? Like you you come out of a conversation that's really heavy, you know, that mm. a, a patient that's had, you know, really bad creatinine, you know, really bad, you know, kidney failure, we know that they're going to pass away. How do you as a clinician, yeah. what do you find that works for you? So I think the first thing to acknowledge is that it can be very, very emotionally challenging. Everyone has their different triggers. Um, for me, like, and you've got to know what your triggers are. For me, triggers are if I've got a young person who's got a child yep. and I just think, it's so awful, you know, that could be me, you know, how, what would it be like if my daughter grew up without her, her parent, you know, it's just awful. Um, so you've got to kind of know that and then you can, I guess, pre, um, pre-arm yourself um, emotionally um one of the i guess one of the ways that i um approach it myself and this is what i also um teach my um junior colleagues and medical students who are attached to us is that we are going along with the patient on their journey but it's not our journey mm, so we can absolutely go along with them and know how hard their journey is and know how you know emotionally um I guess torrid it is and how challenging it is, but it's not our journey. It's not for us to feel that, you know, that we're losing our lives and that, you know, we need to kind of get torn torn up in that journey with them. Also, realistically, it doesn't actually help the patient if we get all kind of carried away with the emotions. Like I'm 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 not gonna say I haven't cried with patients. Mm. I probably cry with patients like every day. <laughs> not big tears, but you know, just little tears. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's right, you're human. But but you don't want to get carried away with that because if you're sitting there hysterical, how is that gonna help the patient? Yeah, you know, true. we're there to help the patient and to kind of be strong for them. So we, I'm always reminding myself and I'm always reminding um my junior colleagues that it's not our journey we're going along with the patient on their journey and i think that gives me a, a really good level of emotional protection that's good i, I love it i'm going to take that on board i think it's quite oh, cool no that's yeah. good <laughs> so often hey you've got to be strong but you can mm. you can show a bit of a little bit of vulnerability you know and a bit of vulnerability. that's exactly right a little bit of vulnerability goes a really really yeah. long way i just stopped the recording here um i found it really 
I guess I'd have to sort of re-listen to all this again and thought it would be so different and difficult um, for Haley in the sense that one day she's, you know, in and out, um, seeing kids, you know, more than likely they're well, they go home. Um, and, you know, more than likely we discharge them and, and they bounce back quite well. There are some that obviously stay in hospital. Um, but then on the other hand, on her other days, um, she's a palliative care doctor um, and having to deal with people who this is their worst day um, from, you know, getting that blood test back or getting those results back that are just totally abnormal and then being told that your life is forever changed. Uh, and not only your life is changed, but your life is limited. Um, so I think that's really hard, but I also can see the other side of the coin in the sense that it creates balance. Um, no two days are the same. On one hand, you have the excitement. On the other hand, you have the nurturing nature of palliative care. Um, I think I've never been in a position to tell a family um, like Haley would have done, um, but I imagine it takes a real special person um, and it takes a real... Um, person who has a sense of themselves as well. Anyway, let's crack back into the episode where Haley gives us her 10 tips. Now we're going to go through 10, the 10 lessons from Dr. Haley Worth um, that you've learned from doing ED, pal care and just life in general. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and so the first one we've got here, or you're welcome to say the first one we talked about, um, avoid the path of least resistance. Yes. Um, <laughs> So this one is about trusting your clinical acumen, trusting your clinical judgment. It's really easy if um, if someone has already kind of laid out a diagnosis for you to just go along with that diagnosis because that's the pathway of least resistance. You know, whatever it takes to get the patient out of ED. I'm just going to talk about ED. You know, whatever it takes to get the patient out of ED, whether that's up to the ward or back home or back to the nursing home, you know, it's really easy to just be like, all right, I'm just going to do this because this is going to get them out of the department quicker. Um, I have felt that, um, I guess, that kind of pull, um, that temptation many times and I have to stop and think to myself, Haley, are you doing what's right by the patient? And then I have to think, okay, let's go through, you know, what I know clinically from the case and make sure I'm not missing anything. So a really good example of this, um, this happened last year and this actually really shook me for um, some time because I, <clears throat> sorry, I felt as though I had nearly missed this. Even though I didn't, I still felt as though I had nearly missed this and I was actually quite upset about it. Um, not terribly upset, but just thinking, gee, I nearly missed this really, really bad diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So this was a young woman, um, pretty much my age, um, so very early 30s, um, one week postpartum, no particular past medical history. <clears throat> um, I picked her up in the last um, 30 minutes of my shift because I, you know, I'm always keen to help people out, you know, yeah. and I'm always keen to kind of, you know, clear clear another person out if I can, yeah. just to help out the other, you know, the other um, doctors and nurses. And um, the triage was basically. Um, mastitis the triage was mastitis mm -hmm. and when i brought the lady in i you know asked her what's going on tell me what tell me what's brought you into ed today she told me she had mastitis she told me that um her um obstetrician had also um told her that she had mastitis so i i had already mentally prepared in my head that this mm -hmm. lady had mastitis and I already started talking to her. Oh, okay, you know, have you had mastitis before? And yes, I have. I had it with my first child. Oh, okay, and you know, 
Um, so you know that what we'll do is we'll, you know, we'll probably need to start you on a course of antibiotics and we'll do things like, you know, warm um, massage and cool aspects, you know, all those sorts of things I already started going through with her. And I said, now let's have a look, show me, um, show me where on your breasts that you think you have mastitis. Mm. Um, so she um, took off her top and I had a, a really good look, um, like just kind of grossly. And I was like, I can't see any red spots anywhere. Mm, mm. And I said to her, oh, can you just show me like where, where? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not sure where you're, um, where you're feeling the, the lump or, because you, usually mastitis is right blazingly obvious angry yeah like, where is it yeah it's really angry and yeah. sore and it's um lumpy and so i was like having a feeling so like, i'm really sorry i'm just not sure where you think you have mastitis and then she said oh look i'm actually not sure myself um i just thought i did i i thought i did because i've got chest um pain and i was like bingo Hello. um so i said immediately there's alarm bells started going off in my head i said look um let's just do a few blood tests because I'm not exactly sure of what's going on here. And um, I explained to her, look, we're just going to test for the enzyme um, uh, that, that's produced from your heart. I'm called troponin. Um, I'm really not expecting it to be um, it to be elevated or anything like that, but I just want to make sure. Um, and so um, we, we added on the troponin to the bloods that she already had, which, by the way, didn't show a raised white cell count. Um, and um, the nurses came in to kindly do an ECG. And sure enough, this lady had very elevated troponin and she had ST changes in the ECG. Hello. So do you know what diagnosis she had then? Tell me. Using Spontaneous right? coronary artery. Yeah. 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 Isn't that wow. just crazy? And young too, 30. Young, yeah, which if you actually look at it, there's a certain kind of, um, um, I guess, subset of patients who are young women postpartum, something about the hormonal changes that we don't quite understand. But it was such a lesson to me. Like, don't just assume, don't just think, oh, you know, if she says this, then it must be this. I mean, she was a second-time mum. Sure, she knew what mastitis was. You know, but don't do that. Always just trust and think no this doesn't this isn't kind of fitting in with the picture i love that you got to trust yeah that's so good because it you know it's easy mm. to just go along with the like the crowd or the flow yeah. of the ocean oh, it's easy. that's right we're going, we're going yeah. down this way let's follow it yeah let's actually go yeah and and like what you said it, it is harder to do it the other way you've got to do more examinations you've got to see more time <laughs> with the patient right. you've got to ask more questions yeah yeah and you've got to stay late you know <laughs> you've and, just and got to also, do that if that's what you've got to do it's funny, eh? statistically, um, people crash their car closer to their houses because they become a little oh. bit more lax, like they're nearly home, almost Absolutely. like I'm nearly home, yeah. I can relax, yeah. you know? Yeah, I can sort of thing. You're nearly to the end of your shift. Oh, I'm nearly there. Yes. I'm nearly finished. That's exactly I'll rush it right. to get out, you know? It's... Exactly. Oh, here's a nice um, straightforward cap for, oh, that will be all oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. I love it. Um, exactly. Um, then lesson number two, you've said, listen to the parent. Okay. This is probably my biggest lesson that I have learned. I mean, not only from um, being a parent myself and realizing kind of how, 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 intimately you know your child but just from seeing patient sorry parent after parent after parent both in gp land and here in um, pcd who they just know that something is not right with their child and unfortunately sometimes they're dismissed and i'm not certainly not wanting to 
<clears throat> to lay blame or point fingers at anyone because it's very easy to do. It's easy to think, oh, gee, you know, oh, she's just a worried first-time mum or, oh, gee, sure, that child's got nothing wrong with um, him. He's walking, you know, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. We hear those sorts of things all the time and it's very easy to kind of think that way. But I really encourage everyone to listen to the parent. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is something seriously wrong with the child. That's certainly not what I mean. But at least listen to the parent, listen to what their concerns are and make sure that you have explored those con- those concerns and that you have, I guess, um, reassured the parent that those concerns um, um, are not something to worry about if you don't think they are. Or if you do think they are, then follow that pathway as well. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Did you learn specifically through yeah. an interaction with a parent or was it more the more you did it you thought oh it's just what we do you know we do listen to the parents? i think it was i think it's a combination of both then like a couple yeah. of parents who were just spot on that something was wrong with their child and this i've got an example of that coming up but also just that just the parents who come in who are like i'm i know that there's something not quite right with my child but i just don't know what it is and sure enough there is something wrong it's not that it's necessarily something major but there is something wrong with their child yeah i think head injury i mean my my example isn't head injury but head injury is probably a really good example of that because a parent is going to know if their child is not behaving normally which is one of the biggest kind of red flags after a head injury right and Mm -hmm. like for us like we don't know what a child's um, particular child's behavior is normally like like we're like oh the child looks fine the child looks (laughs) you know the child's not crying the child looks looks normal and happy but we don't know what that child's normal usual behavior is actually like that's true that's true it's good to know they they know them better than we know them in in a way that's exactly right we know the medical stuff that's right but that's right but they know the behavior stuff and behavior is like i think peds is like you know 90 percent of the child's behavior (laughs) how they're how they're behaving how they're acting so so this is um an example which really just drove home to me how important it is to advocate um, for the patient. So um, listen to the parent. And if you feel that the parent's concerns are, are um, valid, then advocate for them. And I kind of regret that I didn't advocate stronger in this circumstance. I, I did everything by the book. I did everything that I should have, but I really regret not advocating stronger for the for the patient. So this was a, um, a young child who presented. So she's just a toddler. She presented with... Um, intermittent low-grade fevers for a couple of weeks but like this is you know in amongst you know having kind of daycare viruses and hand foot and mouth and stuff so it was kind of a little bit um murky because of that and then just this kind of like intermittent not quite normal weight bearing so again it was a really really vague picture mum um actually got a little bit impatient with me at some stage which wasn't quite warranted so i think because of that um and with the other staff as well i think because of that she was kind of a little bit um classed as a difficult parent um whereas her concerns were actually valid and i think she was just stressed out and worried about her child um I was also concerned about the child. I did um, imaging and bloods. Imaging was, um, you know, um, lower limb, um, um, pelvis, um, 
ultrasound, sorry, sorry, hip ultrasound and um, bilateral pelvis and lower limb x-ray. That was normal. Mm. Um, and then bloods showed mildly elevated CRP and ESR. Mm. Um, she was seen by ortho and she was seen by PEDS. Um, neither ortho nor PEDS um, thought that there was anything really much going on and they both as i said kind of just classed the mother as a little bit difficult mm. um and said that the child was walking normally when by the mother's standard she wasn't walking normally so you can see how this is a really tricky situation mm. yeah so the mother thought it was very very subtle the mother thought that when the child was kind of pulling to stand because she wasn't actually a um, like she wasn't a confident walker yet, you know, she was really just like a kind of a bumbling toddler, so she'd kind of just toddle around. Yep. Um, so the mum thought that when she pulled to stand, she wasn't pulling to stand normally and that she was kind of wincing mm -hmm. and then she, her kind of bumbling gait wasn't quite it, um, you know, as it normally would be. So that's very hard for us to assess, isn't it? Because if you think oh. about it, like it's not like you're assessing a normal walking child. No, walk across there, walk back, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so essentially she was followed up as an outpatient um, and she continued to have these intermittent low-grade fevers and she continued to not be walking normally. She had a series of scans <clears throat> under sedation, as you can imagine, with a young child. Um, so a bone scan, an MRI, and I think one of the bone scans wasn't done properly. It had to be done again. What a disaster. It oh, took two to three weeks after she came in and saw me in ED until she was finally diagnosed with discitis. Wow. Yeah. And she required four weeks of intravenous antibiotics. What is happening with this child? Like, this is just so bizarre. There's something going on. And then the, when the diagnosis came in as discitis, I was quite gutted, to be honest. I was like, yeah. oh, it should have been picked up earlier. I was quite gutted. Do you feel responsible like that yourself or do you just feel like... A little bit. Okay. A little bit. I did feel a little bit responsible that, um, you know, that I hadn't pushed a little bit harder from... Uh, um, I hadn't pushed like Pete's and also a little bit harder and said, mm -hmm. look, you know, I think I think that there is something going on with this child. Do, do you think... It's a silly question, but do you think that people understand the weight that physicians are under to make decisions on diagnosis of patients? <sighs> It, do you mean people as in like the general kind of lay population? Yeah. No, I don't think they do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a tremendous weight. It's a mm. tremendous weight. Good example: a baseball right pitcher. Call, yeah. A baseball pitcher yeah. might pitch sixty percent, you know, of, of his pitch yeah. will end over the plate. No one talks about the forty that he missed. Everyone talks about the sixty. That's that right. And in yeah. and in medicine or even in nursing, you make a mistake and everyone will remember the one, the one time you made the mistake, not the 99% of the time that you got it right. Absolutely. Um, and and yes. we're the harshest yes. Yes. on ourselves because we yeah, hold ourselves true. to a high standard because we do want to be good that's at what we true. do. Mm. That is very, very true. I certainly like, and I have, I want to be completely open. I have made many mistakes and yeah. each time it happens, you just got it because you think, oh, yeah. why did I do that? Or how did I miss that? Or, <laughs> you know, you just think, oh, if only I could go back in time. But no. I guess at the time you're using the knowledge that you have at right. the time. And, you know, as they say, hi, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. It is, isn't it? And it's good to be kind to yourself after that and go, yeah. Learn from it, so it won't happen again, but I'll move forward yeah. in my career. Two, we're going on to number three. Be extra thorough with representators. 
patients that reproduce yes. at all. Yes, um, yes. I think this is a huge one, especially again in peace. I don't think we can underestimate, you know, how important it is that if you have a child who's representing like one or two days or whatever um, after they first presented or um, perhaps they've even represented three times, mm. that you should be really doing a very, very thorough um, review of that child. And ideally, um, that child should be run run by, with, you know, by a run past a senior mm. as well to make sure that nothing is um, nothing is missed. Yeah. Um, I think often, um, again, we can kind of dismiss them a little bit and be like, oh, why are they coming back again? Yeah. You know, surely they should have listened the first time yeah. or surely they should have listened the first two times. Yeah. And look, there are, of course, there are patients like that. Of course, you know, we've all had patients like that where you're like, oh, my gosh, face palm. Um, but I think they are really the exception, not the rule. I think generally speaking, if a child has come back, then that parent is very worried and those worries need to be explored. Um, so I guess um, the example that I wanted to discuss is a little three months, so a young child, a neonate, because that's, you know, three months is, is just within that neonate period, a three-month infant who had a third presentation. So it was, I think it was like something like um, a first presentation was Wednesday, second presentation was Friday, and third presentation was Saturday. So it was like the third um, presentation within three days with subject of, sorry, sorry, with with um, measured low temps at home. So measured low temps at home and very, very vague features on history of irritability and lethargy. Mm. Um, but when each time, when um, each of the two times when um, Bub presented um, um, both to triage and also was reviewed in ED, just presented as this very, 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 you know, well kind of vigorous um baby and mum was brushed off as a worried first-time mum how often do you hear that yeah. <laughs> i think too often sorry yeah. i'm no, sorry if i'm being harsh but i think it's too and, often and you can get some people say oh she's just not coping you know that's, that's right like, oh, is it your first baby you know is it your first baby you know it's kind of like that's right you can't yeah. handle it it's very... Yeah, I mean, like, come on, I've been a mum. Like, I didn't cope at all, and I'm a doctor. <laughs> yes. I was totally acoping. Oh. <laughs> First-time parents, you know, like, it's bloody hard. Sorry, I'm probably not supposed to say oh, that. Oh, now swear away. I don't okay. care. All right, okay, thank you. <laughs> Permission to swear. Mum, <laughs> when I spoke to her, was when I spoke to mum, was just so reasonable, so sensible, and she was understandably worried. This bub, I did not think was well. I thought this bub had clear features of um, of um, meningitis, and mm -hmm. sure enough, he was. We worked we worked him up, and he ended up having enterovirus meningitis. Hey. Now. Uh, yeah, and now intravirus meningitis. Thank goodness, you know it's not. It's not like it's life threatening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's supportive. It's supportive management, generally speaking. Yes. But still, nonetheless, this mum was right. There was something wrong with her child. Mm -hmm. He was unwell, and he was admitted for I think two or three nights. Like, and was the low fever almost like a cold sepsis? It was cold sepsis. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's so often missed. Hey, mm -hmm. like it absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Now, the next one we've got is um, choose language that doesn't diminish or demean uh, and that makes yes. it easy for people to, yeah. So talk to me about the language. Yes. Yep. I know this just sounds so airy-fairy and everyone's like, oh, man, stop telling yep. me how to speak nicely. 
But it's actually <laughs> really when? important. <laughs> it's so important how we speak to our patients. It's so important. Like, I just think, you know, we can make such a big difference in how they feel as a person, how they feel, like, valued if we can communicate to them in like a respectful and open way, how can we expect people to confide in us if we're kind of immediately making assumptions and judgments in the way that we talk to them? So um, examples are, um, you know, if you've got an adult patient and you're kind of doing their, their social history and you're like, oh, you know, so where do you live? Oh, great. Where do you do for work? Excellent. And no smoking. Yeah. No smoking, then you're automatically like cutting off an opportunity for them to say, Oh well yes, actually I do. I do have a few cigarettes on the weekend with my you know, with my bear or whatever. Or if yeah. say, and no drug use. Mm. Um so even if I have like an elderly, like the most like benign patient oh, yeah. ever, I always say, Do you use any drugs at all? Do you use any recreational drugs or do you smoke at all? Even if it, even if, and I say, look, I, I just need to ask everyone this question, mm. um, and they're never offended. No one is ever right. offended, but that's that is, you know, that's leaving it out there. And you know what? Sometimes you'd be surprised that people who you least expect are actually using drugs or smoking, and that 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 it gives information to you know your clinical, I guess, um, you know, your, your workup of the patient. Mm. That's really good. Um, and then. Yeah, and then with um again going back to mums, going back to mums, um, I think it's really important to um to not talk about normal deliveries and rather to talk about vaginal deliveries. Um, this is just a little bugbear that I have. I just really don't think that we should be calling vaginal deliveries normal. There's no such thing as a normal delivery. It's just yeah. a, you know you've just had you've had a baby. No matter which way you've had it, you've had the baby. Who cares if it's C-section or vaginal? Just ask is did you have a vaginal delivery or C-section? You don't need to ask, did you have a normal delivery? Yeah, that's <laughs> And same goes with breastfeeding. Don't don't just assume they're breastfeeding. Don't say, oh, and you're breastfeeding? Say, are you breast or bottle feeding? <laughs> I think it's good. Um, now, I like that one. Um, take the extra five minutes to educate. Um, talk to me about that. Yes. So... Um, this is always a bit of a, I guess, challenging one on the surface because you think, oh my gosh, I'm so short on time as, as an ED. Do I really need to spend more time educating patients and parents yeah. when I'm, I know there's like 10 million people waiting to be seen yeah. <laughs> and I haven't had my lunch yet. <laughs> and coffee, please. So, yeah, or coffee. That's right. So I guess the way I look at it is not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also like. You're putting in that time now to potentially save time later because if you can educate people a little bit more when you get the opportunity, they will potentially not bounce back into ED. They will potentially, you know, have better kind of care. They'll potentially go follow up with their GP and have more kind of, um, I guess, sustained care rather than bouncing in and out of ED all the time just for, you know, for not necessarily, um, I guess, necessary reasons. Yeah. Um, so it does actually, it does actually pay off. <laughs> mm. um, and also, it shows again that you respect the patient and then you respect the parent. You respect that they are that they are people and that they deserve to know about their health and that they deserve to be informed about their health. Mm. Um, so I, I like to. Um, I like to grab any opportunity I can to educate um, yeah. um, a, a patient or it's usually a parent because often there are a lot of things that you can kind of 
grab right there and then and be like, oh, hey, hold on, you just said this, but actually that's not quite right. So, you know, the perfect example in P's is, um, you know, almost every, well, not every, every single shift you have a parent who will come in who will say, oh, I brought him in because I just can't get his fever down. And inwardly you're thinking, oh, gee, it's not the fever. You don't need to worry about the fever. Yeah. But you need, to, you need to be patient. You need to take a deep breath and say, okay, tell me why you're worried about his fever. Yeah. And, then, and then you can explain, look, you know, your child's actually very well, provided that they are, of course. Yes. Um, your, child, your child's very well. And, you know, we're not actually so concerned about the fever as we are concerned about how your child looks. Yeah. Fever in and of itself is not harmful. And then, and then they're like, oh, really? Oh, I thought you had to worry if it went over 40 degrees. Yeah. No, you actually don't need to worry if it goes over 40 degrees. And then, and then like, their life has changed. Yeah. They're like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. And they feel really empowered. Um, and then, again, when you discharge someone, especially when you discharge um, a child, or when I discharge a child, I should say, I go over my instructions again for yeah. them. Um, um, I show them. I, I literally go through the discharge with them. So I actually say, look, this is. I've summarized here what's happened with your child and this is what I think is going on um, and this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, X, Y, Z, your panadol, neurofin, your ventolin, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, and um, this is the this is when I would want you to bring your child back. So yeah. I'm very, very clear on when um, or why I would want them to bring their child back. I don't say um, return to ED if you have any concerns. That's incredibly vague and non-specific. And then that you're just opening yourself up for the patient bouncing back five minutes later. The <laughs> again, you know, you, you yes, are. Exactly, exactly. So if you can spend that time saying to them, these are the reasons that I want you to um, that I want you to um, bring your child back. For example. If their headache is getting worse despite Panadol or Nurofen, or for example, the ABCD acronym that I use, I don't know if you want me to go through that now go, or not. Go, go, go. Yeah, cool. So the yeah. ABCD acronym I put on, I just have a little, you know, those autofill, um, yep. those auto, auto text boxes, and I put it into most um, discharges that are around a patient who has any sort of kind of viral illness or febrile illness or anything like that. So ABCD. Um, and I just type it out for them, so it's right there, and I draw it to their attention when I'm when I'm at the time of discharge. I say, and these are the you know further reasons that I want you to bring your child back. So, A is for level of activity or level of alertness. If they're very flat or lethargic, yep, then you need to be seen by a doctor. B is for breathing, any difficulty breathing, mm -hmm. um, so any subcostal or intercostal or um, recession or tracheal tug or um, any wheeze or stridor. Um, C is for colour, so if they're pale, very pale or blue, or if they've got any new rash that doesn't have a good explanation. And D is for dehydration. And the easy way to um, to know if your child is dehydrated is if they're um, if they're taking in less than fifty percent of their normal fluid input, mm -hmm. and um, and they're or less than fifty percent of their normal wheeze or normal wet nappies. Wow. And so I say to them A, B, C, D. This is what you need to look out. What I want you to look out for. And on top of these, even if every single one of these is fine, but you have a very strong instinct that your child is seriously unwell, please listen to your instinct and bring them back into ED. Yeah, lovely. I love that. It empowers the person too. You've given them teaching stuff that they can take that's tangible. It's not yes. fluff. It's real tangible ABCD. They can that's remember exactly it. That's exactly right. 
that's what they need is tangible, tangible, I guess, signs to look out for. And it's the same with pen injury. They need to know, ten- that's why they, we give them those fact sheets, isn't it? But I think research has shown, and this is for certain, that giving people fact sheets does not replace verbal information. I think we do that in ED a lot. We're like, oh, here's a fact sheet. Here's a fact sheet. The fact sheets are fantastic. That's what I base all my information off. Yeah. But the, the, the parents just going to stuff it in their bag and not going to look at it. You need to actually go through it with them. That's so true. <laughs> hey. um, and we, people can find all this sort of stuff as well. You've got an Instagram. I'm a half plug, but we'll get to it at the end. But you've got an Instagram <laughs> page where you unpack some certain things. Um, it's very up to date. I love it. It's really cool. Where you do Thank videos. you. Um, and and Thank in the show notes, we're going to put that link um, and people can follow you on that because I think it's exceptional for people out there in the general public and clinicians as well. Thanks so much. Yep. Thank you. Um, which is good. Yep. So you said um, the next one we're going to do is um, to ask open-ended questions. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of tying into the other ones, but basically, especially with a parent, always try to get to the bottom of what the patient or what the parent's biggest concern is, don't just assume. So um, if if a parent comes in and, you know, they're like, oh, um, the triage note says that the child's got um, a fever or something like that, don't assume that it's the fever that a child that a parent is worried about. Always ask the parent what they're worried about. Yeah. So an example of this is a um, six-month-old baby who was brought in by mum, assumed to be an ED because of cold feet, um, so it was triaged to um, very low, so category five. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could have just taken that and run with that and been like, oh, your child's feet is cold because it's cold outside. Oh, well, you're fine. <laughs> She's fine. Oh, all right, off you go. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> but I um, I, um, ta- I took um, um, a history from mum and actually what mum was concerned about was not the cold feet. It was actually the... Um, the baby had actually been very lethargic at home, like unusually so, um, very lethargic. And this baby, again, ended up being admitted and worked up for cold sepsis. Mm. Um, 80-10-10? Oh, yes. This yeah. is my favourite. Yeah, so this um, kind of catches me. I love acronyms, 80-10-10 rule. It's kind of catchy. Um, and you've got this 80-10-10 rule um, for ED. Yeah. For ED and for palliative care. And for palliative care. Yeah. Oh, cool. You asked me, you know, how I kind of get through emotionally. This is another way that I get through emotionally is I just like kind of say to myself, it's okay, 80-10-10. So basically this rule is that um, 80% of people are reasonable. They're just like normal, reasonable people, you know, you can communicate with them and they're fine. Um, 10% of people are like super duper lovely and you just like, you walk away from them with like this lovely, like warm feeling in your heart. And you're just like, oh my gosh, that was like the loveliest person ever. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like singing to yourself for the rest of the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, I'm <laughs> um, But 10% of people are just awful. <laughs> and, they're, <laughs> and they're unreasonable no matter what. And I guess what you need to get out of this is that that reflects on them, not on you. Love it. Love it. Um, Another thing is that, and hey, I might be a little bit controversial saying this, but this 80-10-10 rule also works and doesn't only work across patients and patients' families. It also works across colleagues. (laughs) So true. Yeah. So if you bring someone for a consult and they like, 
bite your head off and you just end up feeling really, really crap. It's actually probably not you. It's probably them. <laughs> that is so true, hey, because we take it personally and we think, oh, what did I yeah. do? What did I say? And did I say the right things? Yeah. Or did I not examine my patient properly? And yeah, kind of absolutely. We've done those checklists to say, hang on, are we in the 80, 10, 10? You know, is that? Yeah, that's right. Now, the caveat to this rule is yes. that Sometimes you don't actually know who that 10% are, who are like super unreasonable are going to be. Yes. And you'd be surprised that someone who starts off who you think are in that like super unreasonable kind of category, when you try to, when you kind of um, tr- try to be like kind and you know empathetic with them they actually turn around and i guess you know in palliative care we use a lot of communication strategies um to try to help them with that you know to try to kind of get them on the same page as you so to speak or us on the same page as them um but i guess you'd be surprised that some people who you know they start off like really really quite horrid and then you sit down and you really kind of to the nitty-gritty of what's troubling them and they actually turn into a reasonable person mm, that's so true hey mm, like, yeah 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 it could have just been that other person or it could have just been how they were spoken to you never know yeah well so, they could be like incredibly stressed and angry and worried oh, and yeah. frustrated and it's just like coming out and like blah, like that I, um unfortunately i think with all the stress of COVID, and i know like i've kind of alluded to this in a couple of my instagram videos like Unfortunately, I think it really is bringing out the worst in some people. And so, unfortunately, you will have more people kind of falling into that 10% category um, and being very, very difficult to kind of reason with and bring around. But I still think that it's worth just giving it a little go. And mm-hmm. if you're not getting anywhere, then then you can say, all right, okay, all right, they're in that 10%. <laughs> yeah. So my eighth rule is um, it's actually a clinical rule that I use in pediatrics exclusively. Yep. Unfortunately, this one doesn't quite work in adults. Well, tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe it does. Um, <laughs> that is, <laughs> that is um, break the cycle of misery or nip the cycle of misery in the, in the bud. Yes. So, so often, I mean, we're so lucky nowadays. Our children are immunized, thank mm. goodness, against so many serious diseases. Yes. If you have a child who's immunized and who comes into ED, the likelihood of them having a serious bacterial infection is Thankfully, it's low. What do kids come in with? Um, they, they usually don't come in with a serious bacterial. They usually come in with dehydration. That's what they usually need help with. So if you can get in early into whatever viral illness they, they, they have, sometimes it's bacterial illness, but often it's viral, and if you can break that cycle of misery early, then they're off and Mm. and laughing and the parents are so much happier as well so if you have a child who comes into ed or um who's miserable crying miserable inconsolable um firstly panadol and neurofin mm-hmm. um don't just be like oh let's just give them panadol and see how they go panadol and neurofin whack it into them if they're not taking it orally give them a panadol suppository yeah go hard <laughs> um absolutely go hard or go home yeah. <laughs> and if they're, if they're vomiting and that's making them miserable, give them some on dance, Sean. Yep. If they've, if they've even got like borderline low sugars, give them some sugar, whether that's a bit of sucrose or some, some diluted apple juice. 
even if they're not, um, even if they're not, if they're, even if they don't have low sugars, but they're still just miserable and they're kind of not keeping fluids in as well. I'm a huge, huge fan of giving um, diluted apple juice. That little bit of sugar, you know, we all know that by from our biochemistry days, that glucose pulls in, um, pulls in both water and electrolytes into the cell. So glucose is essential if a child is unwell and, and kind of water teetering on dehydration. Yeah. Um, you give them Panadol, Neurof, a little bit of sugar and fluids, you will be amazed how that just turns turns the situation around in like so many children. That's so true. It's a whole nother kid. Mm. <laughs> a bit later it's on, a it's a whole, whole nother kid. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then and then what you've got to kind of reinforce the parents is that, of course, you're not, of course you're going to review them and make sure that they don't have something that needs um you know, medical intervention. But once you're satisfied that that's the case and they're off on their way home, you're going to reinforce the parents that this is what you need to do at home. You need to stay on top of the cycle of misery mm-hmm. at home, give them regular Panadol and Nurofen, sand of their fluids, give them a little bit of sugar with that, you know, diluted apple juice, hydrogen ice box, normal isopols, whatever yeah. it is, get it into them. That's so true. I like it too. And we mm. do the same things in ED. So it's like if they can start that early, your time in ED will probably be diminished if there's nothing you know, that's exactly right. So I'm a big fan of, I, I appreciate it so much when nurses, um, and we're just so lucky in, in our ID to have nurses who are like so, so highly trained and so experienced. And they know that if a child comes in, you know, miserable to whack that Panadol and Nurofen in. And I really, really appreciate that because, you know, perhaps you're off seeing another patient and they'll call across to you. They'll be like, oh, hey, Hayley, do you mind if we, can we chart this person, this, um, this yeah. child panel on you? I'm like, yes, please. That's amazing. And then they'll have already started the child flow and it's like, yeah. oh, so awesome. You see them later and they're a lot better. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Sometimes breaking the cycle of misery extends to giving the child an IV bolus or an EG yes. bolus. And then yes. you wouldn't believe how it turns them around. Yeah. That's so true. That's yeah. Cool. Your next one was um, be flexible. Yeah, so this is a little bit unusual. This is in regard to, you know how uh, a lot of what we do in medicine is like policy or guideline driven? Yes. I am all for policies and guidelines. I follow them as much as I can and as closely as I can. Um, Not least of all because I have, I guess I would say I I I, I look them up on a regular basis. I'm like, oh crap, what's the rest of the antibiotic again? Oh, let's look at the guideline. (laughs) So true. (laughs) I'm like, oh, thank goodness, there are guidelines. <laughs> but what I want to say is that, I mean, policies and guidelines, they're fantastic, but they're not the be-all and end-all. And especially as you get more experience as a nurse or as a doctor, do um, you can be a little bit flexible ar- around them. Of course, you know, if you're not sure, of course, you should always seek, um, you know, senior kind of assistance and advice. But you don't always have to be 100% by the guidelines. So say if you have... Um, um, a child who, um, just as an example from the other day, actually, yep. there was a little boy, um, um, I think it was about 12 months, who came in with um, sudden onset facial swelling that was asymmetrical. So he had specifically, it was around his right eye. Mm-hmm. And the story sounded quite allergic, but we were going into the weekend, so it was Friday, and we're going into the weekend. And I said to, um, I said to the lovely um, JMO, look, it, look, chances are it probably is allergic, but if it is preceptal cellulitis, you know, we don't want mum to have to worry about trying to find a GP appointment on Saturday when she probably won't be able to, or having to come back into ED on a Saturday, which would also be awful. She seems very sensible. So let's give her a script and say, take a photo of your child's eye now, have a look at your child tomorrow. If it's if it's no better or if it's getting worse, then start the prescription for antibiotics. Hey, I like it. I like it. Mm. So it's giving that flexibility. It's putting a little bit more power into the parents or into the patient's hands and saying, look, you know, 
we trust you. We know that you want the best for your child and we know that, you know, we can rely on you to, to um, as long as we give you the right, I guess, clinical information to yes. make the right decision for your child. I mean, you've got to make sure, of course, that you give them the right decision-making um, um, knowledge to do so. Yeah, and the last one, which I like this. <laughs> my favourite. Putting it in or not, but I like it. I want you to say so, it for number 10. What is it? <laughs> it's not very kosher. I do apologise. No, I don't. <laughs> um, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, you can't argue with stupid. <laughs> you cannot argue with stupid. There we go. Got it out there. Look, there are some people who you're just like, oh, my goodness. <sighs> and okay so i learned this lesson when i was it was actually when i was an rmo doing palliative care at calvary i'll tell you the clinical situation because i got really really worked up about it the um the situation was we had this um elderly lady who was um in calvary for end-of-life care um she had a type of malignancy that had metastasized to her bones and everyone knows that if you've got Mets to the bones, your bones become incredibly fragile. Mm. So this, you know, it can be as much as literally like lifting your arm up and, you know, the, you know, the proximal humerus um, mm. fractures. It's very unfortunate it, it happens. Mm. So that's what happened with this lady. Um, so um, her, um, at some stage during her stay, she moved her arm or something happened in her um, her um, proximal yeah. neck of humerus um, fractured. And when her family members, so when her daughters were informed, and of course everyone was very apologetic and said, you know, we'll, you know, if, you know, we'll liaise with orthopedics, we'll do everything in your mom's best interest to keep her comfortable. Um, and I think the actual, you know, that the orthopedics plan was just, you know, as it usually is, just, you know, um, sleep for comfort. Yeah, yeah, calling for comfort. Yeah. Um, and um, the the daughters were just they were beside themselves with rage and what happened was we ended up having a family meeting everyone was dreads the old family meetings yes. we had a family meeting with the two daughters and me and yeah. um and the daughters said that the they outrightly blamed the nursing staff and said that that the nurses had fractured their mom's arm now wow. i just could not i got very worked up i couldn't like i, I couldn't handle them saying that basically so i was like the nurses take such good care of the patients. They are so caring. They would never do that. You know, I was like yep. fully like up there, you know, getting yep. all kind of like vocal and defending the nurses in the family <laughs> meeting. Whereas from was just like, I'm sorry to hear about your concerns. I'm yep. very sorry. Yep. And, you know, um, you know, we really do care for your mom. And I was like, why is she getting more angry? And I was like really upset about it. And I actually like came out of that meeting and I was like quite upset and quite, you know, I don't think I was in tears, but I was just quite upset. And I went into like in the doctor's room and I was like, you wouldn't believe it. And this is what the what the daughter said, and this is what I said, this is what Frank said. And she just looked at me with this like like really knowing look and she was like, you can't argue with stupid. Love and I was like, wait, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? She's like, they're stupid and he's not wasting his energy arguing with him. And I was like, ah, oh, and the penny dropped. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's powerful. It's, you know, you keep going to like, oh, come on, come on. And yeah, yeah, it gets yeah. to a point where you feel like you're repeating yourself on a, you know, fair. That's story. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the only person you're getting more worked up is you. (laughs) Yeah. And we were talking before, 
before we started recording that then you you carry that with you on your next patient or when you're going to eat lunch or, you know? Yes, yeah, yes, cool. absolutely. And it really does help you because you think, oh, you know what? Maybe I don't have to convince every single person. You know, maybe I can just go about my day, do the best I can. And if someone chooses not to necessarily, you know, take on board my advice, I've done the best I can. Yep. You can't force everyone to agree, you know, to believe with what you believe to be best friend. Mm. Um, Hayley, you are you're a pleasure to talk to. Um, oh, thank I've, you, Ben. Yeah, I've you. really enjoyed, you know, our time talking and even our 10 points that I think any clinician, paramedic, nurse, student or um, physician, doctor can take on board in their... Um, and I think they're tangible things too, Hayley. They're not just fluff. I really feel like they have <laughs> weight to them because they come with patient experience. Um, which I think is important to have patient experience because that's why we do this. How do people find you um, and how do people look at some of the content that you've got running at the moment? Um, so at the moment I've just got a little um, Instagram page under um, Dr. Haley Worth, so D.R. Yeah. Haley Worth. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy to try to I guess create content based on what anyone you know would like to see but at the moment I'm kind of aiming it more towards um more towards parents around like kind of common worries about um you know that they may have around their children and trying to I guess present good like solid information out there I have also done a couple of things about other things like like one about AstraZeneca vaccine and things like that but but generally speaking I think my main audience is is parents but I think it's also um, if you're if you're kind of um, keen to know how to communicate well with parents, which makes me sound like I'm blowing my own horn, I'm so sorry. But I think I think it could also really really benefit um, nurses and doctors because um, I guess that's something that I just really really try to do well is I try to communicate well um, with parents, and this is the information that I'm presenting for. So it's basically my cheat sheets. I love it. I love it. And they're good. I, I, you know, I think I can vouch for you. I know other people that will have worked with you can vouch for you. You are a great communicator. <laughs> and the good thing is, Thank you. Um, you, you're, you know, even like you said, you'll run over and go, oh, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. You're so good at like engaging the family, which I think is the keys for the people that come in to make them feel at home, that we do care. We know this stuff. Yeah. We spend our time yeah. reading about it. And we do yeah. it because we do love it. Um, we do love yeah, exactly. yeah. and resources yeah. out there for people Thank that want to do um, I'll, in the show notes we'll add any resources yeah. for people that want to get into palliative care um, and would like to sort of you know interesting articles on pal care I'll put them up as well oh um, awesome I'll care and ED fabulous. stuff I'll put some articles in that as well cool. yeah fabulous yeah yeah and, and, and you're always very welcome to um, to contact me I'm always very happy to talk to anyone about palliative care alright you guys but that was epic I'm definitely taking home those 10 points that Hayley gave us um, it was phenomenal um, I love um, how Hayley described I guess the different sides of the coin um, from palliative care to ED thank you Hayley for coming on the podcast it was awesome remember to follow Hayley um, Dr Hayley Worth W-O-R-T-H on Instagram um, look at some of the content she's putting out there it's epic um, it's really cool you can also follow me um, edgm underscore podcast on Instagram as well um, and thank you to everyone who does listen. Remember that any advice on the ED jam should be taken over your local medical practitioner. Um, thank you, everybody, and have a good day. Bye.